Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 5. If you have a prayer slip or visitor slip, Sylvester or Ron would be glad to receive those, and we'll pray for you this week. I want to talk this morning, our message is really centered on the theme that comes right out of verse 2, in this grace we stand. And sometimes in walking through the book of Romans, we'll come to a patch where I really feel a need to slow down and to soak into uh, this passage and to receive all that God has for us. The grace of God is cherished most joyfully when we've mourned our sin most deeply. I believe that was a driving motivation in the heart and mind of the Apostle Paul when he was writing Romans 1 through 4. It's not pleasant reading as he's making the case of the depravity of the human race. The beauty of the gospel is fully appreciated only when we understand our true spiritual condition. We are all participants in this dark cloud of human depravity, and that depravity is total. And into this dismal picture, the gospel shines as an eternal hope that makes every day filled with the promises of God, the joy of our heart. The good news is for everyone. This gospel is a global proclamation. Every tribe and tongue and nation and land, we are commissioned to take this gospel to the corners of the earth. In Romans 1 through 4, Paul proclaims an evangelistic message for sinners high and low, rich or poor, to find refuge from the wrath of God to come under the banner of God's work through Jesus Christ. And these truths are foundational doctrines that lead us and sustain us. They shape our worldview. They they guide us through life and keep us from being blown here and there by every wind of doctrine. John Piper writes in his book, God is the Gospel. Gospel doctrine matters because the good news is so full and rich and wonderful that it must be opened like a treasure chest. And all its treasures brought out for the enjoyment of the world. Doctrine is the description of these treasures. Doctrine describes their true value and why they are so valuable. Doctrine guards the diamonds of the gospel from being discarded as mere crystals. Doctrine protects the treasures of the gospel from the pirates who don't like the diamonds but who make their living trading them for other stones. Doctrine polishes the old gems buried at the bottom of the chest. It puts the jewels of the gospel truth in order, in order on the scarlet tapestry of history so each is seen in its most beautiful place. That's what I'm hoping will happen this morning as we talk about God's grace. It would be amazing to us. As we do an inventory of our sin and what God has done in us through the work of His Spirit and the finished work of His Son. Sadly, many Christians are allergic to doctrine. (laughs) And they balk at the idea of having to think about things like this. Human pride rejects that that uh, that we're really that bad off. We really don't need a Savior. We just need a renovation. A few self-help tips to get us through. But that is a misplaced priority. That is spiritual blindness. For those of us who have embraced the grace of God in Jesus Christ, this turning into a new section in Romans 5 
our promises given to those who've been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. It's for believers only, actually. It's for those who have been rescued from the wrath to come by faith in Jesus Christ. And we come to verses 1 and 2. And what I want to note is that first in verse 1, since, or therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I would note that Romans 5, 1 through 11, these are our fighter verses for this year. Shake your head if you knew that. Good. I'm glad. So typically we come to the fighter verse either at the beginning of the year or at the end of the year and we preach through them. I want to urge you to memorize Romans 5, 1 through 11. You get a little prompter each week in the bulletin, I believe, and to look at um, hiding them and treasuring them in your heart, these verses. We would notice first, peace with God. We have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. This peace with God really means that our warfare with God is over. To be lost, to be a sinner, is to be at enmity with God. Many commentators have pointed out in, in Romans, it's an unfolding case. It's an argument, it's a systematic argument that Paul is making, and consequently the book is filled with therefores. And I bring this up, I did last week and feel a need to do it again. In chapter 3, verse 20, we read it, the therefore of condemnation. Therefore of condemnation. In chapter 5, verse 1, therefore of justification. In chapter 8, we'll see the therefore of no condemnation in Christ Jesus and then in chapter 12, where we're called to present ourselves to God as living sacrifices, that is the therefore of dedication. So Paul has established that humanity is guilty before God, that judgment is coming, the wrath of God is revealed and will be revealed to those who spurn God's righteousness and salvation in Jesus Christ. I once read long ago about a man named Charlie Peace. He was a criminal in England. And on the day that he was taken to be executed, he listened to a minister read the Word of God. And when he found out that he was reading about heaven and hell, he looked at the preacher and said, Sir, if I believed what you and the church of God say, and even if England were covered with broken glass from coast to coast, I would walk over it on hands and knees and think it worthwhile living just to save one soul from an eternal hell like that. I sense that in Paul's writing. This urgency. No one can be saved by their efforts or their religious duty. Our spiritual condition makes it impossible to keep the law. So Paul has brought to the forefront our father Abraham, who was saved by faith. And he brings Abraham front and center, and we've considered his life. And we've seen that it's by grace through faith. Warren Wiersbe wrote in his commentary, condemnation means that God declares us sinners, which is a de declaration of war. Justification means that God declares us righteous. Not because of anything within us, but because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and that by faith in Him, that righteousness is, is credited to us. And with that comes a declaration of peace made possible through Jesus' death on the cross. We have peace with God. 
We have peace with God. That's an interesting tense. We, we have now, our standing with God is, is now one of peace because of what Jesus has done for us. I pray that that is your position, that is your foundation in Christ. This peace is not a feeling, it's not a tranquility of heart or mind, but an established position. Faith in Jesus Christ means that I have peace with God. And with that positional um, with, with my position in Christ, what flows to me is the peace of God in the circumstances that come in this, in this world. That through Jesus Christ, I have peace in my soul. Apart from salvation through Jesus, however, the human heart is at war with God. Look at chapter 5, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. While we were enemies... So justification by faith means that we have peace with God and our warfare with God is over. John MacArthur explains this way, most unsaved people do not think of themselves as enemies of God. Maybe you don't think you're an enemy of God. Certainly in Christ that's true, but most don't think of themselves outside of Christ. I'm not an enemy of God. I have good thoughts about God. We need God might even be the common Response because MacArthur continues, they have no conscious feelings of hatred for him and do not actively oppose his work or contradict his word. They consider themselves at worst neutral, neutral about God. But no such neutrality is possible. There's no neutrality in the universe, <laughs> in one sense. The mind of every unsaved person is at peace only with the things of the flesh and therefore, by definition, is hostile toward God and cannot be otherwise. After the famous missionary David Livingstone had spent several years with the Zulus in South Africa, he went with his wife and young child into the interior of the country to minister the gospel. And when he returned, he discovered that an enemy tribe had attacked the Zulus, killed many of the people, and taken their, the chief's son captive. The Zulu chief did not want to make war with the other tribe, but he poignantly asked Dr. Livingstone, how can I be at peace with them while they hold my son prisoner? Commenting on that story, Donald Gray Barnhouse wrote, if this attitude is true in the heart of a savage chief, how much more is it true in the God, and, uh, true of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ towards those who trample underfoot his son, who count the blood of the covenant wherewith they were set apart as an unholy thing, and who continue to despise the spirit of grace. For those who have tasted the goodness of the Lord, the goodness of God's grace, the warfare's over. There ought to be a sense of peace that comes to our soul that I'm right with God, not because of who I am, but because of who Christ is. And by trusting Him, my standing with God is secure. Notice with me secondly, grace has brought us near. Verse 2, through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. 
So grace has brought us near. Where we were once at war, once at enmity with God, His grace has brought us near and provides several very important things. Treasures, actually. We've been given access. We've been given access to God. It says we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. One of the most dramatic events on the day that Jesus died was that the veil in the temple was torn in two. The veil signified to the Jews, stay out. You can't enter into the presence of a holy God. You need a mediator. And the old covenant provided a way of mediation by which Israel could commune and fellowship with God. Within the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, there was also a wall that said to the Gentiles, stay out. For a Gentile entering beyond the wall would be killed. In Ephesus, Paul spoke of the wall of hostility. The wall of hostility broken down through the death of Jesus Christ. So Jew and Gentile have access to God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Access to God now. Access to God forever. Years ago, I read an account by Erwin Lutzer where he and two of his daughters had gone to Washington, D.C. He had been speaking at a, a men's retreat and um, he, he was introduced to a member of, of President Bush's uh, Secret Service detail. This is Bush 41. And he asked, uh, this Secret Service uh, man asked Lutzer if they would like uh, a visit to the Oval Office the next day. To which he said, Sure. The next morning they met at one of the gates at the White House and when they stopped at the first guard station, one of Lutzer's daughters offered her purse to the officer who was inspecting them and um, he waved her on and said, you're with him and he nodded to the agent, go on, go on in. Then as they entered the White House, they met another assembly of guards and they looked at the agent, glanced at them and said, you're with him, go on in. In the hallway, they met more guards. Again, they looked at the agent, glanced, glanced at them and said, you're with him, go on in. By now, they were near the Oval Office and Lutzer could already see the open door. One more guard stood at the entrance, glancing at the agent. He too waved them on toward the door with the same entrance phrase, you're with him, go on in. And they set foot in the Oval Office though they were not allowed to walk very far beyond the door. And Lutzer thought about the final judgment. Imagine all the believers in Christ when they're gathered around the throne of God, when we arrive on the other side of the gate called death, and Jesus comes to join us on our journey and route to our heavenly home and we go past one century of angels standing there at the gate and they say, you're with him, go on in. You're with him, go on in. And finally, near the very dwelling place of God, we're almost blinded by what the scriptures calls inapproachable light, unapproachable light. And for a moment we have a flashback remembering our sins and our failures, sinners of all kinds, of all types of sinning, of all depths of sinning, all of these redeemed and cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And the angels who serve in the dwelling place of God look at Jesus, then they glance at us and say, you're with him, 
go on in. Praise be to God for his redemption and his hope. We have access to God now by which when we seek him in prayer through the mediation of Jesus Christ, our prayers are heard. His presence is with us always, even until the end of the age. Not only do we have access, but we've been accepted. Having peace with God means that there's no more hostility, no more warfare, no more dread of judgment. Not only has Christ made us right with God, but he has also given us personal access and we've been accepted by God through his finished work. It says here to stand. We stand upon this grace, this grace in which we stand. By the mercy of God, we've been brought into this grace. Are you standing there in your life? Is this what the strength of your heart is? I pray so. Instead of being his enemies, we're his friends, we're his own children. We've been adopted into his forever family. It's God, God's purpose to recreate his image, his glory fully in us so that we, we can confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. We stand in God's grace and the outcome of our lives is secure in his hands. We have access. We've been accepted. Do you believe that you've been received and accepted by God through Jesus Christ? We'll get to that in chapter 8 eventually. If God's for us, who can, who can be against us? Charles Wendall in his book, uh, The Grace Awakening, says that when God looks at, at those in his son, they can expect to see from him a yes face. A yes face. You know what a yes face is? You know when you look into the eyes of this person, they are for you. You know what a no face is? We all know what that is. But that's not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for those who are trusting in His Son. He gives to us a yes face. We've been accepted. And then I would note thirdly, we have received assurance Notice the fruit of what comes from being justified by faith. We have peace with God. His grace, His unmerited favor has been extended to us. Not only that, looking ahead a bit, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. This is verse 3, verse 4. And endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Then hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that has been given to us as a down payment of greater things yet to come. There's a security in Christ. There's a security in salvation. We will see in the book of Romans in many places by inference here uh, and, and, and explicitly that those who are in Jesus Christ are secure in their salvation, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Once we've been born into God's family, we can't be unborn. For those who are truly trusting in Christ who have been born again, they can never be lost. The book of Romans teaches the security of the believer in Jesus Christ. And that automatically brings up questions about defections and apostasy and people who once identified with the church but are now a wall. we would just say that 
Scripture is clear that apostasy and falling away is not a new phenomenon. The true saving faith is a persevering faith. True saving faith bears fruit as we walk with Christ. We have a, a blessed assurance that Jesus is, is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. We stand in God's grace, friends. Stand in the finished work of Christ. There's nothing you can do to earn His favor. He's extended it in Christ. Rest. Stand in that grace. Now, one of the things that can happen when you look at the book of Romans is you can look at these arguments and you can look at these doctrinal terms and long for them to be fleshed out. And I thought about that this week. And I was really taken by examples in Scripture of this grace on display. We, we see it among us regularly when people come to Christ, when God gives victory over uh, issues that we face in our life. But I want to take a, a couple examples from Scripture in applying this grace in which we're to stand. I want to take a trip to the Old Testament I'll mention the passage, maybe you can read it. It's in 2 Samuel 4 and also in 2 Samuel 9. About a man whose name is hard to pronounce, Mephibosheth. Say that three times fast, especially if you have a slight lisp. Mephibosheth. This man is kind of a mysterious figure. Maybe you've never heard of him. He was the son of Joshua. Excuse me, Jonathan. He was the son of John, Jonathan, David's good friend. And we see grace on display. And grace is God's unmerited goodness, love, favor to those who don't deserve it. Charles Swindoll wrote, Grace is positive and unconditional acceptance in spite of the other person. Grace is a demonstration of love that is undeserved, unearned, and unrepayable. When we read our Bibles, we come across example after example of God's grace on display, beginning with Adam and Eve, and Noah, and Abraham, and Joseph, and Israel's deliverance from Egypt, and King David. And so I'd like to bring our attention to King David and his treatment of Mephibosheth. It could be one of the greatest illustrations of grace in the Old Testament. It involves this man and this tender story, the son of David's friend Jonathan. And David and Jonathan had a deep friendship. If you track that first uh, through 1 Samuel, they had a deep friendship. Jonathan, of course, was killed by the Philistines with his father. And David had made a promise to Jonathan. Jonathan knew that David would eventually ascend the throne. And it was common in that day that if, when a new king came on, they would wipe out the family of the, of the predecessor just to quell any rebellion. And so Jonathan and David were close. And Jonathan said to David, Remember my house when you're king. So David's thinking about that promise in 2 Samuel 9, and he says, is there anyone left in the house of Saul? 
Now Saul was Jonathan's father. He was the first king of Israel and an unmitigated failure as king. And he pursued David like a wild beast. So David would have had motivation to say, I'm against them. But for Jonathan's sake. And even, he even pledged this to Saul, even when Saul tried to kill him, that he would do good to them. Is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's, Jonathan's sake? And that word kindness is the Old Testament word that really communicates grace, favor. Is there anyone from Saul's house that I could show grace to? And David is thinking about this promise. And so, is there anyone? 2 Samuel 9, verses 2 and 3, Now there was a servant of the house of Saul named Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king engaged him, Are you Ziba or Zeba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show grace to him? Ziba said to the king, There's still a son of Jonathan. He's a cripple in his feet. Mephibosheth was. Where is he? David asked. And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he's in the house of Michar, the son of Amiel, and Lo Debar, which is really a dismal location. Lo in Hebrew means no, Debar, in this case means pasture, pasture land. He's living in a desolate place. So this crippled son of Jonathan, we get the backstory on how he became crippled. He was five years old when the report of, uh, of the death of Saul and, and Jonathan came. And when that came to his nurse, the nurse in haste fled with the boy and he fell and became lame. Second Samuel 4 verse 4. So David sins for me. Mephibosheth. What do you think happened when David's soldiers knocked on Mephibosheth's house on his door? I'm done. And the soldiers say to him, come, we're going to bring you to the king. And so they bring him to the king and, and David said, Mephibosheth? And Mephibosheth said, your servant is here. Put aside the crutches and fell before the king. Listen to Charles Swindoll's recounting of this. What a moment that must have been. This frightened man throws aside his crutches and falls down before the king who has all rights, sovereign rights over his life. And the king says, are you Mephibosheth? And he said, it is true, I'm Mephibosheth. He had no idea what to expect. Surely he expected the worst. And David said, do not fear. For I will surely show kindness, grace to you for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And will restore to you all the land of your grandfather, Saul. And you shall eat at my table regularly. Can you imagine what Mephibosheth must have felt at that moment? Expecting a sword, a strike to the neck. He hears these unbelievable words from King David. Picture what life would be like in the years to come at the supper table of David. The meal is fixed and the dinner bell rings and along come the members of the family and the guests and you have Amnon 
who was clever and witty, the son of David, comes to the table first. Then there's Joab, the leader of David's armies. Then you have Absalom. Talk about handsome. He had so much hair, they weighed it out every year. Then there's Tamar, the beautiful, tender daughter of David. And later on, one could add Solomon as well. He's been in the, the study all day, but he finally slips away from his work and makes his way to the table. And, and then you hear the clump, 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 and here comes Mephibosheth hobbling along. He smiles and humbly joins the others as he takes his place at the table as one of the king's sons. And the tablecloth of grace covers his feet. Oh, what a scene. We're like that cripple. God has invited us through the work of his son to his table. That's grace. Then we go to Luke 15. And Jesus tells three parables. He tells the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, or the prodigal son. And each of these parables confronts the gracelessness of the Pharisees, the hopeless religion of the Pharisees. In fact, they accused him at the beginning of Luke 15, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And to the parable of the prodigal son, a man had two sons. We sit up in our seats, so this is going to be interesting. And the younger one said, give me my inheritance now, basically saying to his dad, I wish you were dead. And he was given his inheritance. And we know the story. He went and squandered it in riotous living. And lo and behold, he's in the pig pen. And in the pig pen, as he's eating the pods that the pigs eat, he comes to his senses. That's a real good understanding of sin. It's an insanity. So he's eating this big food. And he's saying, oh, what am I doing? And he began to reflect upon his father's house. He came to himself. And he says, I'll go to my father. And he works up this speech. I'll say this and this and this. And we follow the parable and the father's waiting. And he sees his son coming and which was kind of a dishonor for a Jewish man to run. His father runs to greet him. And he says to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost, but now is, is found. Let's celebrate. The ever quotable Paul David Tripp said, grace means you're you're greeted with the eternal love of God on your worst day. This past Tuesday, Doug Rhodes and I went over to Mobile to the funeral of Ed Lacey. Two and a half hour funeral service. Doug and I said uh, to each other, we've been to church. (laughs) I just felt the grace of God through it all. The grace of God through Ed Lacey, who's preached in this body many times, 
we love Dead Lacey, and I shared the fa- that with the family in my part in the service. One of the pastors shared with permission the story of Ed's daughter, Benita, who was a rebel, a prodigal, who lived for the world and despised her father's teaching. And in her pursuit of worldly things, the hound of heaven gripped her at the age of 24. Living life in the pig pen, as it were, she came to the end of herself and the insanity of her sin and one day said, I need to go to church. And she went to church and came under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and was born again, never to walk those paths again. On that Sunday, Ed was at a meeting in Florida on ministry assignment, and Benita called him. He was in his hotel room. And when the call came, and she said, Daddy, I'm saved. He dropped his cell phone. And can you hear Ed saying this? Hallelujah! (laughs) Hallelujah. When Ed returned home, he called Benita and said, I want to take you out for a steak dinner. Benita thought, this new life in Christ is not bad. (laughs) The next week, Benita received another call from her father. Would you come over tonight? I've got something for you. And she arrived and Ed gave her a present. She opened it up and it was a ring. The following week, Ed called her up again and said, I'd like for you to come over tonight. I have something for you. And he gave her a present and she opened it up. And it was a robe. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? When the prodigal saw his son return, kill the fatted calf, put a ring on his hand, and a robe around him. My son who is lost is found. God always gives us rotten kids the best apple, doesn't he? Some might get a little worried about grace. It's a bit risky, don't you think, preacher, talking about this free grace of God? It might be a license to sin. Well, that would certainly be an error and wrong. But, you know, grace, rightly understood, puts you in a position to live the rest of your life in gratitude for what God has done for you. Not as a license to sin, but how could I ever dishonor such a great Redeemer? Grace changes our heart to love the God we were at war with. He takes our heart of stone and gives to us a heart of flesh. This is the grace in which we stand. This is the grace that has saved our souls. This is the grace that will lead us to the very presence of God. And I pray that that is where you're standing now. So what about you? What's keeping you from crawling out of the pig pen? Acknowledging that this life you're living is crazy and empty, and shallow, and futile. Today, this moment, maybe you need to come to terms with the God who has created you. The one who has the sovereign right to call the shots in your life. The one who came from heaven in the person of Christ, lived a sinless life, died on the cross as a substitutionary payment for your sins. 
and rose again from the dead that you might have a living hope. It was His propitiation that absorbed the wrath of God so that you would not have to bear it and brought you near as a son and cleansed you and healed you and forgave you and redeemed you and said, you can sit at my table forever. To Jesus Christ, I yield my heart, my life, my all. His grace is my only hope. What's keeping you from receiving this gift of eternal life? And what's keeping all of us from living with such sold-out obedience to Him that we're taking His name everywhere we go? I'll close with this. Paul Tripp. What Jesus did, we can't do. What Jesus accomplished, we couldn't achieve. What Jesus gives, we can't earn We're saved by grace alone, by faith in Christ. Would you bow with me in prayer just in the closing moments of this service? We're getting ready to sing, which is an opportunity to respond to these things. I pray that we've been responding all the way through this worship service this morning. But what what has the Lord brought to your attention that requires you to believe? you to obey. Romans speaks of the obedience of faith. And that's what responding in faith is about. That's why we have this closing segment of our worship service to sing to the Lord, to reflect on what we've heard, and to say, I need to obey the Lord in this area. I need to surrender in this area. I need to stand in His grace right now. Father, as we close this time this morning, may we be surrendered to you. I pray that the full impact of this word would uh, make a difference today and in the coming days on how we think of you, that you're a God who greets us in Christ, Christ with a yes face, that you're for us, and that couldn't be more clear when we look at the testimony of your word. Lead us now in these moments in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.